crisis continues to unravel in Afghanistan. Less than a month since the U.S. withdrew, the Taliban has taken over the country, named its government, and is flying its flag. Meanwhile, questions continue to linger as to why the evacuation strategy failed Americans and our friends on the ground, what this means for long-term American interests in the region, and how we untangle ourselves from the mess there. Welcome back to the Foreign Desk Power Panel tonight. I am Lisa Deftari. We have a special panel of all-stars to break down the crisis in Afghanistan. We have with us Congressman Michael Waltz, representing Florida's 6th Congressional District, graduated from the Virginia Military Institute, and has has served over 24 years in the U.S. Army. Presently, he is serving in the National Guard. And after being commissioned as Army Lieutenant, Mike graduated Ranger School and was then selected for the Elite Green Berets uh, the, with multiple combat tours in Afghanistan, the Middle East, and Africa. Mike was awarded four Bronze Stars, two with Valor, and he is the first Green Beret to be elected to Congress. He is also author of the book Warrior Diplomat, a Green Beret's Battle Green Berets battles from Washington to Afghanistan, a very unique perspective that he has. Welcome, my, uh, Congressman Waltz. We also uh, have with us Dr. Walid Ferris, who is uh, a very good friend to the show and to the panel. In, the, in addition to being an internationally recognized analyst and author called upon by the majority of news outlets to shed light on foreign policy topics, Dr. Ferris is also the co-secretary of the Transatlantic Parliamentary Group and former foreign policy advisor to Donald Trump. He is the author of several books on the region, including Future Jihad, The War of Ideas, Winning the War Against Future Jihad, The Coming Revolution, The Lost Spring, and of course, his latest book, The Choice, which compares the foreign policies of Trump versus Obama and Biden. And last but not least, we have, uh, who will be joining us, but I will introduce him right now. Uh, his name is Ali Maysam Nazari, who is currently the National Resistance, Resistance Front's Foreign Relations Head. He is also a historian, a researcher with expertise in the histories of Islam, Central Asia and South Asia. Nationalism and nation building and ethnic conflicts are other research interests that he has welcomed. Ali, I was just introducing you. And he also has uh, degrees in political science and Iranian studies from UCLA and a master's degree in comparative politics from the London School of Economics. Welcome to you all. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. Uh, Congressman, let's jump right in. Um, thank I, you very much. One of you has, uh, so thank you. Thank you for being here. I know how busy you all are with everything going on, and you guys are really um, the, the superstars on, on this topic, uh, each with your uh, own specific expertise that's integral to understanding the complete picture on the ground uh, and with regards to how it reverberates back to Washington, D.C., Congressman, um, you have a unique place at the table here, not just as an elected official, but someone who has served in Afghanistan, and certainly you understand the 20-year sacrifice that we've made there. Uh, it seems that at every turn, this administration tries to conflate criticism about the evacuation with what was the alternative. We couldn't drag this out any longer than, than we had to. Was this our only way out? And um, is it what we hear over and over again that the you know the intel bodies didn't see this coming how how could this be well you're absolutely right the administration i think in its spin uh for this disaster which is which is absolutely a disaster from a credibility standpoint for the united states from a humanitarian standpoint from a global uh great power competition standpoint and 
uh, from a counterterrorism standpoint. Uh, so we, we are seeing spin there and we are seeing conflation of the, the completely botched uh, pullout and evacuation versus the broader policy decisions. Uh, you, you know, look, as soon as President Biden announced this decision in April, both Republicans and Democrats uh, from the House and the Senate, primarily all veterans who'd served there and understood the ramifications of what he announced, began demanding, uh, sent letter after letter, call after call, press conference after press conference, that uh, Biden begin the evacuation then. Uh, he had to do so, we knew, uh, before he closed down all of our bases, pulled out all of our helicopters and military assets, and then left those who had stood with us uh, for so many years behind, and now has become very evident, left Americans behind. Uh, and instead, what we've seen is the State Department make claims like, well, we, we gave Americans 19 notifications. Well, yes, that's true. They sent out 19 emails, but in the same breath, uh, a number of officials said everything's going to be fine. Uh, and in those emails, it basically told Americans, you're on your own. Good luck. Get through Taliban lines if you can. But if you get here, uh, if you happen to, then uh, then your government will step in to help you. Well, that's unacceptable. And thank God for so many grassroots veterans organizations and even congressional offices that have had to turn into operations centers that stepped in. And then finally, on the um, you know on the broader policy, Biden continues to present this maximalist choice of, and it's a false choice of either complete withdrawal, pull us down to zero, or this kind of D-Day style invasion of hundreds of thousands of American troops that he would have had to send back in. Uh, and we all know that there were plenty of policy options in between uh, and that many of us have advocated uh, and crossed multiple administrations. And I advocated this in the Trump administration to not go to zero, to leave a small group of special operations and intelligence uh, uh, operators there that could one, uh, continue to pressure various terrorist groups, but two, uh, provide that mentorship, uh, logistics, intelligence, uh, and air support to the Afghan military as they continued uh, the fight. But instead, Biden pulled all of that out at once, uh, along with the narrative that American abandoned you, and, and now we are where we are. You know, it seems at times like if we had flipped a coin at each turn, we'd have better accuracy at this. Congressman, I want to I want to continue with a, a follow up uh, more specifically about the actual evacuations. The claim that we're hearing that no one has been left stranded, more specifically, the allegation that the State Department is now the only obstacle standing in the way of private flights, uh, right. getting people out of Afghanistan. This has been the accusation over the past couple of days. And last night we had a leaked email uh, that was sent to Fox News that surfaced to confirm this. In the meantime, the State Department is uh, saying this. This is uh, uh, Secretary of State Blinken today in Germany at a press conference. Let's take a listen. As I think all of you know, uh, a number of groups and individuals determined to help are working to organize charter flights out of Afghanistan, including from Azari Sharif for people who wish to depart. We're grateful for those efforts. There's been a fair amount of confusion surrounding the flights. And let me just clarify a few things. As of now, the Taliban are not permitting the charter flights to depart. They claim that some of the passengers do not have the required documentation. While there are limits to what we can do without 
personnel on the ground without an airport with normal security and procedures in place, we are working to do everything in our power to support those flights and to get them off the ground. That's what we've done. That's what we will continue to do. Specifically, we're working with NGOs, with advocates, with lawmakers around the clock to help coordinate their efforts and offer guidance where we can. We're helping to arrange landing rights and liaise with other countries in the region in the question of overflight. Uh, we've made clear to all parties, we've made clear to the Taliban that these charters need to be able to depart, and we continue every day, virtually every hour, to work on that. So, Congressman, this is literally a 180. It's a blame game. They are saying that the Taliban is doing exactly what the State Department is being accused of doing. Do you believe what he's saying? You know, that's that's disingenuous at best and just outright lies at worst. Uh, look, we know that uh, these veterans groups, and I'm in touch with a number of them, have arranged safe passage through uh, Taliban lines, a very perilous journey. Uh, that they have them currently in safe houses. They've arranged for donors to bring these planes in. Uh, and, and as you said in, in the lead up there, you know, the State Department is parsing its words very carefully. While on the one hand, they said, we haven't, we haven't stopped these flights. Well, those emails show what we all knew, that that may be technically true, but they certainly weren't helping and telling these charter groups and these veteran groups, well, you're on your own to arrange landing rights with countries like Albania and Qatar and, and other places, which are which is virtually impossible, uh, number one. And number two, uh, you know, he said just yesterday that the Taliban's not blocking anyone, but they're checking for appropriate paperwork. Now they are uh, uh, blocking people. And by the way, they just named today the Taliban named Siraj Haqqani, a global terrorist who's holding an American hostage right now, American Navy veteran Mark Frerichs that they've been holding for the last two years. Uh, why isn't he free to go? Uh, and, and we all know the Haqqanis are serial hostage takers led by Siraj Haqqani. Mm -hmm. And now he's in charge of who has appropriate paperwork. Uh, this is, you know, this is spin and politics of the worst kind. Uh, Americans are stranded. Our Afghan allies are stranded. Uh, and, and we haven't even gotten into uh, the resistance uh, that that Mr. Um, that Mr. Ali Nazari is representing mm -hmm. that, that this administration is completely abandoned. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I want to get to next. Um, speaking of deflection and criticism, and in the in the first press briefing after the Taliban made claims on the country, uh, President Biden seemed to allude to the idea that it was the shortcoming of the Afghan military and President Ghani uh, that the country fell into extremist hands. And today we heard from President Ghani for the first time. He put out a statement on his Twitter account apologizing to the Afghan people, um, explaining that uh, he was warned by security forces that he must flee the country and of course um, defending you know uh, himself and his family uh, against the uh, accusations that they took money out and he says we've always been scrupulous and um, you know I uh, he said I, I offer my profound appreciation and respect for the sacrifice of all Afghans especially our Afghan soldiers and their families for the last 40 years it's with deep and profound regret that my own chapter ended in similar tragedy to my predecessors without ensuring stability and prosperity I apologize to the Afghan people that I could not make it and uh, make it end differently my commitment to the Afghan people has never wavered and will guide me for the rest of my life Ali I want to turn to you here um 
You have an apology from the Afghan president as well as uh, open support for Afghan forces. Um, you know, let's start with this. What what's going through the minds of the Afghan people? Do they feel betrayed by their own president and military, or is the story otherwise? Of course, of course, uh, some who been notified who the country millions of dollars, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, they they completely feel that been betrayed by an individual that they looked at, uh, upon, they, they trusted for years. Many, not everyone, but many who trusted uh, him for years. And now they were, they were abandoned on August 15 without being notified. And the, the cap just surrendered. And the disarray and the catastrophe that has reigned Afghanistan, especially Kabul, since August 15. No one can erase that from his history. You are, of course, a, a spokesperson for the National Resistance Front. And for those who are not familiar, this is a group of fighters from the old government forces as well as regional uh, militia fighters who are basically giving it their all uh, to be the last obstacle that stands in the way of a full Taliban takeover. Um, this is um, all this is just a bit of background, mainly localized to Panjshir Valley. Uh, which has been long the center of resistance in Afghanistan. And it was there that these fighters were able to defy the Taliban rule in the 90s and um, held out during the Soviet Union's occupation as well. Uh, Ali, both the Taliban and the resistance fighters have recently uh, claimed victory over Panjshir and what's going on on the ground there. We have reports, of course, that hundreds have died in these clashes. Um, what's the latest that you're hearing from the ground there? And is there any optimism left that uh, these resistance fighters can take this on themselves? So the hand in Afghanistan a movement, a national movement, not only in Pineshire, that is trying to preserve democracy, the rights and freedom of every citizen, whether woman or man, to, to counter and combat terrorism, international terrorism. And they're heroically fighting at the moment. However, unfortunately, unfortunately the national movement last remains on the eve of 9-11 has been abandoned. The National Resistance Front feels that they're fighting this global war, this global conflict all alone without international support. And, and we feel abandoned at the moment. We've been getting uh, an influx of, of Arab fighters affiliated with Al-Qaeda fighting besides the Taliban just in the last operation against Pinesher. There were well over 500 Arab fighters Alongside Ben, who were trained in Arkansas, affiliated with Al Qaeda, they've they've come into Afghanistan to to create a haven, a, a haven for terrorism, a haven to launch new attacks, not only on Afghanistan but U.S. assets in the region, and ultimately to repeat what happened on 9/11/2001. And we're the only forces fighting this evil fight them with limited resources and we're being faced with a force an evil force that is using all 
American arms and munitions in U.S. men to kill the remaining democratic forces in Afghanistan. This is the irony. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. there is no no voice in 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 any uh, 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 place that decisions are made and policies are made. Where we're seeing support, no type of sympathy uh, to to the national resistance movement, and the national uh, the NRF at the moment is holding out. We've spread resistance. There, you, uh, we're talking over central Afghanistan now. In the cities, our leader, uh, Commander Ahmad Massoud, two days ago, he had been, he called upon the nation to rise up against terrorism, right? Uh, against a criminal, a drug cartel that has hijacked Afghanistan, and the world has literally ignored this and abandoned Afghanistan. Rise up, and now we're seeing for the past two days, women are are pouring into the streets to support the resistance. Men are, mm -hmm. young men, old men, everyone, all segments of the population are becoming mobilized to support the resistance, to support democracy, the rights and freedom of everyone to terrorism, take their country, Al-Qaeda, from ISIS, from the Taliban, and their sponsors. Unfortunately, however, we're doing this all alone, 20 years after 9-11, 20 years after so much cooperation, a partnership being formed to fight the war on terror. Now it's all us, and no one is coming to our aid. Well, there's... I, I hear you, but there are, you know, um, lawmakers like Congressman Waltz, uh, who I, uh, you know, I, I, I postponed this event three times to make sure he's here because I know he's one of the vocal ones. Uh, and there are many like him, but I, I, I completely, completely appreciate and, and, and confirm the sentiment, um, Ali. You know, um, I wanted to come back to this question, but, you know, what, what would they need? I mean, you're not going to get an about face from this Biden administration, but what would these fighters, if they had, you know, a magical wish list, what would they need in, in terms of support or words, tangible or otherwise, uh, to, to, to actually have, you know, a chance at this? Ali. Well, we, we have been fighting this struggle. Yes, we've been fighting this struggle for the past 30 years, 50 years, and we at times been fighting with limited resources. So we're able to continue our res uh, res with limited resources. However, even receiving humanitarian support at this time is, is going to dramatically impact our efforts. Fortunately, right now, the Pineshare is besieged. The people inside Pineshare have blocked from um, uh, moving in and out of the province. There's a shortage of food, there's a shortage, shortage of medicine, medication, and medical supplies. And basically, all international organizations have ignored this humanitarian crisis. We're receiving no. Unfortunately, we cannot continue this situation without the support of the international community, especially uh, organizations and other organizations that could come to women and children that need aid moment, uh, sick individuals who, who need medical supplies, need medication. This is the type of crisis that, crisis that we're facing. And for, uh, for the past uh, two days, since 
the Taliban have taken the main road in Pinesher, we're seeing uh, them deliberately attacking civilians. They're either aiming civilians, taking undisclosed location, who they're deliberately killing them in their own villages. So there is a major trouble going going on in Afghanistan occurring at the moment, except for friends like Congressman Waltz, uh, Dr. Ferris, and others, we're, we're not seeing any support, unfortunately. Right. Right. Everyone has forgotten Afghanistan. They have forgotten the 20 years of, of partnership against international terrorism, and now we, we're supposed to fight this war all alone. Right. There's a lot, a lot of hypocrisy, and we'll, we'll get to it. Um, uh, Walid, um, I want to come to you uh, for, for two different levels of expertise that you have. First, as a professor, obviously, I know you know the history of this region inside and out. But secondly, um, your position, you know, in terms of understanding foreign policy, working for the different administrations. Uh, and it seems like right now the White House has two go-to responses in terms of covering themselves regarding Afghanistan. One is to say that the only other option would be to stay in Afghanistan, which we talked about with Congressman Waltz. And the other is to say, well, President Trump was the one who started it, right? He was the one who initiated negotiations with the Taliban. Uh, and um, Walid, I know in your most recent book, you compare side by side the foreign policies of President Trump and President Obama slash Biden. You wrote this book in the uh, before the election. So so I think it was more of a prediction as to what the Biden foreign policy would look like if it, and it has um, echoed and mirrored that of the Obama foreign policy. Um, can you break this down to a science? What are the differences in approach of President Trump versus President Biden on dealing with the Taliban? And uh, is it fair to say that this was all initiated by President Trump? Lisa, first, thank you so much for inviting me to be on this great panel with a uh, great voice in Congress, our Congressman uh, Michael Walls, and of, of course, a representative of the civil society resisting in, uh, in Afghanistan, our good friend, Mr. Nazari. And yes, your question takes us really even beyond the political division between Trump, Biden, Obama, Bush. So if you allow me a few seconds to, to take that journey, and actually it did start. 20 years ago, a few weeks from now, or actually a few days from, uh, from now, it will be 20 years, when uh, a jihadi group, Al-Qaeda, attacked us. Uh, as a result of that, there was a rise of a consensus. Uh, we all lived it at different ages at the time. And the consensus was national. It was Republicans and Democrats. Uh, it was to bring down uh, the regime of the Taliban because they actually assisted Al-Qaeda which uh, waged that war against us. And we spent all these years to achieve that goal, which is making sure that no jihadist organization, should it be Al-Qaeda, Taliban, later on around the world, it was not just in Afghanistan, but in, in many other countries, going to Syria, to Libya, to Yemen, to Iraq, and then came Daesh and ISIS, the whole history that we all lived for 20 years. Uh, so that was the consensus that we have established, which was, materialized by the 9-11 Commission. People tend to forget that there was that one holy moment, uh, crystal clear moment, that Americans on both sides of the, uh, of the aisle have come together and, and committed to do the fight. But we, very few people still remember what was it about. It was on the one hand to bring down that terrorist regime in Afghanistan, 
but also to make sure that the society of Afghanistan and for that matter other places in the region will be enabled will be enabled to continue the resistance by their own by their own force that was the idea so no the initial idea was not to have american forces forever maybe at one point it will be reduced to a small uh, group of military i mean remember <laughs> in korea we have thousands and thousands of forces and they're not even fighting in germany and elsewhere but i'll leave it to the congressmen and to others in governments to debate that my point is there was a consensus unfortunately as of 2009 i'm going to be very specific here there was another school of thought that came with the obama administration and then of course is stretching now with the biden administration uh that broke that consensus and it says no the jihadists are not the enemy the muslim brotherhood are not the extremists they actually tried to change that consensus that we had for all these years and we saw it very clearly in the lecture that uh, president obama then and cairo addressed the muslim brotherhood and the other islamist forces and a sort of a contract was established between that administration and those movements the taliban of course were one of the most extreme wings in al qaeda but the idea was from that uh, new ideology that we have in, in, have had in washington is that we're going to actually partner with them mm -hmm. they were the enemies but we're going to partner with yes. them and we saw it in in the arab spring Mm -hmm. In Egypt, in Libya, in Tunisia, in Yemen, in Syria, the policy, eight years of the Obama administration to compare with the six, seven years of the Biden administration, you know, we, we saw that happening. And what we saw also is that the societies in those countries refused it. In Egypt, they rose against it. In Tunisia, I mean, just a few weeks ago, they, 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 they removed that, uh, that movement in democratic ways, Libya, elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So we were responsible for um, for Afghanistan because we were present in Afghanistan. Then we had the uh, the Trump administration. The Trump administration came and stopped what was actually going to happen. So the policy of the of the Biden administration was actually a continuation. It was supposed to continue with the Clinton administration and withdraw. But the issue was not about withdrawal. The issue was to whom you would remit the power after you withdraw. That's the big question. Nobody wants to stay in Afghanistan forever. There is a consensus on this. And the problem with the Obama-Biden administration or school of thought is that we are going to you know, give it to the Islamists or to the jihadists or the Taliban. We will create that difference between Taliban and ISIS for a while, and then we'll see how it goes. That is a choice. It's not just by coincidence. The Trump administration, and I'm, I'm going to be very crystal clear on this issue, came, stopped the process, but unfortunately, parts of the Trump administration, the bureaucracies, were also influenced by the Brotherhood and were also influenced by those discussions in Qatar. I'm going to be very limited. I was foreign policy advisor to the campaign, and in the campaign, this did not exist. It came at the third year. So we, we went, or the administration went to, to Qatar. They negotiated with the Taliban. I criticized that at the time, but at least the Trump-Taliban deal had safeguards. It, would, it wasn't about transferring Afghanistan directly to the Taliban as it happened right now. It was if the Taliban mm -hmm. engage with the Afghan government, disarm, become a political party, enter the government, then we will withdraw. And gradually, that's way different from what the Biden option was, that we will let the we will withdraw. We will not we will commit not to fight with the uh, Afghani government. 
And at, the, at that time, obviously, the Taliban mm -hmm. will get the signal and do the blitzkrieg that they've done. And then we will negotiate with them. That's why we see Secretary exactly. Blinken in, 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 uh, in Qatar trying to say, oh, we're going to exactly. see what we're going to do. Exactly right. Um, and, and, and you segued perfectly into my next question um, for the congressman. It, it seems like just exactly what uh, Dr. Ferris said. It seems like on the one hand, we hear that the Taliban are the ones that are preventing the flights from coming out, right? Our own State Department is saying that. On the other hand, they're telling us that there, there are partners on the ground, right? When there was the explosion at Kabul airport last week, President Biden and others went on record saying, um, you know, we're, we're relying on the Taliban as our partners on the ground and we're sharing intel with them uh, in going after ISIS-K, the group that claimed responsibility for the attack. Congressman, you know, what, what kind of policy is this? Is it prudent for the U.S. to be sharing intel with the Taliban? And having been there yourself on the ground and knowing the influence... Yeah, the, you know, the administration is, is heading headlong down a very slippery slope. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's being led, as was the last administration, by Ambassador Zal Khalilzad, who I've called for to resign, uh, giving this fantastic failure. Uh, who has convinced multiple administrations now that the Taliban were serious about peace, that they were serious about negotiations uh, and about moving the country forward in a responsible way when that has clearly been shown, especially with the all-star terrorist cabinet that was just named mm -hmm. today, uh, to be uh, absolutely spectacularly wrong. Uh, and many of us told him so. Uh, in, in the early days before we headed down this road. But the administration is still clinging to this, mm -hmm. this narrative that there are kind of good and moderate terrorists that will work with us against the really bad terrorists. Uh, and all of us know that al-Qaeda, uh, the Taliban, Haqqani, uh, have intermarried, worked together, been aligned uh, for decades. And yes, certain factions may fight uh, at times, but they all share the ultimate goal of waging jihad, their extremist view of, of Islam and Sharia law, and uh, if given the opportunity, attacking the West. Uh, Biden's own intelligence community is briefing us in Congress that al-Qaeda fully intends to reconstitute and fully intends to attack the West. Uh, that, that, is, that is all clear. So yes, we have this total disconnect. On the one hand, uh, it, you know, that we can work with them, but on the other hand, they're not allowing planes to leave. Right. Uh, you know, and, and if the if the suicide bombing at, uh, at Kabul International proved anything, we cannot rely on terrorists to screen for other terrorists. Uh, right, and, right, and exactly. That is a microcosm of what I fear is to come. Uh, and as Mr. Nazari uh, rightly said, is their uh, intent to attack America once again. Of course. And um, Walid, I want to come back to you. You know, um, it's 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 quite interesting to look at this from a, a macro and aerial view. And I and I know you're very good at, at connecting the dots for us. Um, you know, con the congressman rightfully said we're not going to be able to trust or to differentiate or call one terrorist group moderate over the other. Um, but yet these differentiations are being made. Um, what what will be of, of Afghanistan in terms of what place will it have in, in the regional um, politics? Meaning, 
you know, what is going to be the reaction or what has been the reaction and what will it be going forward from the Middle Eastern neighbors and more specifically, um, Qatar. Qatar has come in and, um, you know, swooped in and, and taken a, a real nice position, comfortable position. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken made a trip even to Doha, paid them some nice compliments, including to say no country has done more than Qatar during this uh, military withdrawal. Um, and for those who may not recognize this connection here, how did a country like Qatar become the broker? And um, what will this relationship and side by side other nations, for example, Iran being another important one, uh, manifest going forward with regards to Afghanistan? Lisa, thanks a lot. Let me make very quick points for the sake of time. Uh, and I'll answer two of the questions that were actually important. And uh, I'll give my opinion. Number one, the fact that there are Taliban, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, etc., it's not only specific to Afghanistan. I mean, these are various types of jihadists who, of course, will vie for power in the same way that Hamas and Islamic Jihad and Gaza vie for power, but then come together against their enemy. The same way that Amal and Hezbollah in Lebanon vie for power. Same thing in Somalia, everywhere else. So you cannot ally yourself with a jihadi organization uh, doing counterterrorism against another jihadi organization. You ally yourself against a national army or a secular force or at least a moderate force. So that's number one, quickly. Second, the point which is now in the, in the media being debated, why are the Taliban doing this in Mazar-Sharif or elsewhere? Why are they keeping those, what I call, soft hostages? They're not going to touch them, but they're going to keep them. Well, it's simple, because they want the United States to recognize the Taliban. Once the United States basically to not to pressure them until they finish their business of control of all of Afghanistan. So if you ask me, they're doing this to make sure that the valley will fall, that everything will be uh, controlled by the, uh, by the Taliban, then they will release them. That these are soft hostages. But having said that, the real question that you've asked about the role of Qatar, obviously it's a long history, but Qatar is basically has two things, has the government, and has also the network of the Muslim Brotherhood. It's an old story, they have Al Jazeera. So they have the bright side of being our uh, allies or partners, we have a base there, we can speak with them, they are soft, they speak with us, but at the same time, they are funding Al Jazeera and they had uh, during the, uh, the 2011 uh, series of upheavals in the Arab world, they've supported every single Islamist movement from Egypt to Tunisia to Libya, elsewhere. I mean, the Arab world knows the story very well. So I think they're very smart. And I think they position themselves in a, in a way that they could do uh, good things for us in terms of tactical matters, mm -hmm. extracting, uh, you know, individual US citizens or other Afghans, so on and so forth. But, but remember that the Taliban were hosted in Qatar for 20 years. And that would lead me to a conclusion. The Taliban that we see today are not the Taliban, the wild Taliban of 1996 to 2001. They are sophisticated. They have been trained. Uh, trained. Uh, they have the political operation out of few offices uh, back in Qatar. So mm -hmm. while dealing with Qatar, you, the administration needs to know you're dealing with a country or a government that has a vision for the region. And that vision is basically to widen the influence of the Islamists and to make sure that the Taliban change from being wild to being accepted and acceptable, but the ideology will remain the same.
you know, they, they keep telling us they're they're new and improved, but it's not what they're telling us. They're telling us that they're more moderate and they're going to treat women better, but it's all what you're saying. They're more sophisticated and able to have a PR machine and able to get on social media and able to uh, communicate with Washington in a way that will, um, you know, manipulate it to, to the way that they'd like. But Dr. Ferris, I want to push back a, a bit and ask you a, a broader question with regards to why uh, the Obama administration and now the Biden administration why do they believe that they can tame or work with rogue extremist elements like the Iranian regime, like uh, the Houthis in Yemen taking them off the list, like Hamas, like Hezbollah, and now, of course, the Taliban in Afghanistan? My main question is, is it based on uh, innocence or is it by design? I don't think it's innocence. Innocence, basically, if you don't know what's happening and then you just are idealistic and move forward. The first reason for why uh, these two administrations, the Obama administration and the Biden administration, moved out of the American national security consensus of Democrats like Lieberman, like uh, all those uh, great lawmakers who are Democrats and Republicans have put together for, for, for 20, 21 years, is academia. This whole battle started in academia, on campuses, the whole network of Middle Eastern studies, which actually produces the experts who advise government, who advise even some parts of, of Congress sure. and certainly media, they have influenced our thinking, uh, pushing us to think that the Islamists are the legitimate ones. Versus how? How can they do that? By, by, by stating that this is how the region is, this is the culture. Remember Edward Said used to mention that <laughs> this is a cultural relativism, we don't know what's talking about. And despite the fact that the Islamists were rejected by every single civil society, from Egypt to North Africa to Syria and elsewhere in Lebanon, the Cedars Revolution, they still are committed to that. But there is another quick point. There are deals made. It's easier for financial elites. I don't wanna go too much into the details, but easier for some financial elites to cut a deal with an authoritarian regime that they can work with than to be competitive. Uh, and that's the essence of the Iran deal. What's the Iran deal? The Iran deal is that a lot of interests here who would prefer to have that deal with, the, with this Iran regime instead of an Iran democracy, because there it's, it's harder to get the contract that you want. And same thing, I believe, is happening with Afghanistan. Actually, today, and I conclude here, the Taliban said, we're ready for the contractors to mm -hmm. come back, but through us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I want to, I'll, I'll go to Ali in a moment after I ask the congressman a, a question about um the bipartisan, you know, view on this, because Ali, I want to ask you, um, you know, about this, this what, what Dr. Ferris just alluded to. But um, Congressman, uh, many Democrats, um, and of course, um, Republicans, uh, so both sides of the aisle have made it clear uh, that they have criticisms about the withdrawal. Um, how widespread is that condemnation uh, among members of the House? And will anything come of it? Well, there's bipartisan condemnation for uh, for how the evacuation uh, has been so mismanaged, uh, and that only continues to grow. And we're starting to see that in the Senate now, with Senator Blumenthal, of Connecticut, even right. his outrage. Those of us that have been, you know, really very closely involved with the evacuation, with working with these veterans groups, my own staff that's been on the phone helping people through Taliban uh, checkpoints, have seen. Uh, the bureaucracy, we've had to fight through our own government. Uh, and and that, that piece is quite bipartisan. 
but there's also still a bipartisan divide on the mm-hmm. broader policy issue. Um, there, there are many of us on both sides of the aisle that believe as long as Al-Qaeda and ISIS and these groups are at war with us, uh, that we will have to maintain some form of presence there. Uh, it's, it's, you know, not what people want to hear, but it's the reality that we're in. There's also folks on both sides of the aisle, libertarians and progressives, who are still sticking to the point of just get the troops out. Now, of course, none of them can then explain how we do counterterrorism after that and uh, you know, what they're prepared to accept in terms of threats to the homeland. Um, so it really is, it really doesn't cut across uh, partisan lines, but I wanna take one more moment to add to uh, what Walid was saying about this approach that we've consistently seen. Uh, the same team that's around Biden is the same team that was around Obama. Uh, Blinken, Avril Haines, the Director of National Intelligence, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, they were all acolytes of John Kerry and Susan Rice, who, by the way, are still there and and I suspect somehow have had a role in some of this uh, decision-making. And it's truly, uh, there's no other way to call it but one of appeasement. It is this belief that if we give enough, if we concede enough, uh, if we make enough concessions, if we're, frankly, if we're nice enough, uh, to our adversaries that they will be kind back and that they will respond in kind. Uh, and we've seen that whether it was the same group that was behind the Bergdahl trade, uh, that was behind the Iran deal, as Wally mentioned, that was behind our reckless withdrawal from Iraq that led to the rise of the ISIS caliphate. Yeah. But then we had to go back uh, to deal with it. Uh, I think if we have to go to Afghan- back to Afghanistan, it will be far worse than when we had to go deal with ISIS. Yeah. Uh, because we have far less to deal with now unless we start supporting groups like the National Resistance Front. Um, So it it is truly a flawed approach that believes America is much a part of the problem around the world as the solution, and that if we're only kind enough and lead by example, our adversaries will follow. And we all know that they do the exact opposite. They smell weakness and they take full advantage of it. And I think that's starting to unfold in a horrible way now uh, in the last few days with this cabinet and with us heading into a hostage crisis. Right, absolutely. And you think they'd learn from, you know, the the negative reinforcement that they've gotten uh, both the Obama administration and currently the Biden administration has only been in office for, uh, you know, several months. And already every single decision that they've made with regards to appeasement in terms of foreign policy has backfired. Um, the Iran deal being the, the main example of that. And now Afghanistan uh, probably trumping that uh, in terms of, of headlines. But um, Ali, I want to come back to you. And, you know, I, I asked you the question of what would be the, you know, the, the wish list that the, the resistance fighters would have in order to have a, a fair chance at this. Um, but you know, going back to perhaps what Donald Trump's um, you know initial thought was to say, it's been at that point sixteen years, uh, and we can't get rid of the Taliban. So let's see if we can perhaps include them in a way that would be to our benefit or that would match our interests. If we can be aligned with them, which I don't agree, and I know that that uh, Walid doesn't agree with this because we've talked about this before, it's because you can never tame or you can never reform a terrorist. Um, it would only be you know a wolf in sheep's clothing for the time being. But 
That being said, do you think that there is a segment of the Afghan population that thinks, well, now, just like the Muslim Brotherhood did in Egypt, now we can have our soup kitchens and our schools and our infrastructure, meaning our country has been in a, in a, in a you know, constant turmoil for 20 years. There will now be some semblance of stability because the Taliban is well-organized, well-funded, and they have, they have experience in, in nation building because they've been hovering over for 20 years. So the struggle of the Afghan people for the past years hasn't been for study. It's been for freedom. It's been to, whether it's men or women of society, to acquire their rights as human beings. It's to establish democracy, to have an open society. They are not going to sacrifice these values for stability, for sake of stability, because stability doesn't translate into peace. Stability, you could have stability in an oppressive regime. However, the people of Afghanistan, they yearn for freedom. This is why when Commander Ahmad Massoud, the leader of the uh, uh, NRF, in an address two days ago, when he called upon his people to rise up, the first group to rise up against the Taliban were women. The mm -hmm. Taliban were, were pointing their guns on women, and the women were still chanting freedom. They were uh, chanting these slogans for, for their rights, for their freedom. So in Afghanistan, the people are not, are not going to stop the struggle for, to, to acquire these values, these principles that is ingrained in human civilization. And whether we so receive support or not, these people have the resilience, they're going to continue their struggle. However, however, they are going to suffer because international terrorism is increasing in that country. The Taliban have strong allies like the terrorists, like Al-Qaeda, and their sponsors in the region. And they're going to continue their oppression on the Afghan people. This is why the international community, especially the Western world, needs to support these groups, needs to support the women of Afghanistan, needs to support uh, uh, resistance, uh, resistance like the uh, NRF to be able to counter these extreme radicals that are, that's a criminal syndicate. Look at their cabinet today. My goodness. It's, it's, it's ridiculous how no, it's such a kind of you know, a ca cabinet. Yeah, I was going to just jump in here and say, Congressman Waltz, uh, you know, this is a rhetorical, but perhaps you can address this, this issue of we have these women's issues and you have these are typically, you know, uh, the left who are the champions of, hu of human rights and women's rights. And where is the squad on all of this? Right. They're, why why right. are they not up in arms about all of this? Where? Yeah, that's right. Where, where are uh, the voices that uh, would cry out for social justice? Mm -hmm. uh, to protect minorities, uh, to protect women, uh, just basic human freedoms. But we've seen this hypocrisy time and time again, whether it's Uyghur uh, women that are suffering in concentration camps, forced sterilization, forced abortions, mm -hmm. um, mass rape and torture. This is all language from Biden's State Department describing the genocide that's happening there. Uh, the brutal oppression that we're going to see unfold uh, once again under the Taliban. Uh, even, even the migrants from Central America, the Doctors Without Borders, estimates uh, 30 to 40 percent of which uh, are sexually assaulted on their way to uh, the United States border. Yeah, those, 
those voices are silent. Um, and, and I hate to be so cynical, but you know, social justice doesn't just apply here in the United States, it applies uh, around the world. And they need to stand with groups uh, uh, like the National Resistance Front who are fighting for basic freedoms. And the Biden administration needs to decide if is it going to support uh, the Afghan constitution that was de developed in a democratic process, is it going to support the rule of law? That constitution clearly says the vice president is the uh, is is the next in line if the president is incapacitated or flees, as he has. Uh, but instead, we see them cutting deals uh, and trying to, to, to cut this devil's bargain with with the terrorist regime and, you know, and, and continue to deal with uh, Pakistan. Uh, which no one is talking about, but is absolutely supporting the Taliban, has supported them for years. Uh, and there are increasingly credible reports of Pakistani military forces on the ground uh, aiding in the genocide that's going on in the Panjshir Valley. Uh, so, so this administration needs to walk the walk and not just talk the talk when it comes to standing against brutal oppression and standing right. for basic human rights. Right, absolutely. And and uh, Walid, we're, we're very short on time, but I did want to touch upon um, Pakistan is deja vu, right? Again, uh, our frenemy uh, getting the aid checks, but helping you know the enemy on the other side, just like they did 20 years ago. Um, but you also have Iraq, you have uh, China and Russia. Um, can you quickly maybe give us one line about each? I know it's it's oversimplifying, and I know you're you're a wealth of, uh, of you have a wealth of information to share with us. But just very quickly, you know, what's going to be the reaction from each one, and how will they insert themselves as we know they will uh, into this equation? Here's the problem: if the United States, if the Biden administration and their Western allies, NATO allies, uh, through the United Nations or directly, do not act now. It's going to be a big chaos in the region. Because yes, uh, Pakistan is intervening. We were told it's to be proven that they used uh, air force capacities in terms of drone. Uh, there will be a response by the competitors of Pakistan, that's India. These are two countries that are nuclear. It is not going to be easy. The Russians are very nervous. They're doing joint exercises with Central Asian uh, countries. Iran has a plan, obviously, which is to try to get to some areas inside um, inside Afghanistan. China has the, the clearest plan is to get in and uh, try to harvest all the contracts possible. But that is going to cause a lot of problems. Besides, let me let me tie it here, is that the Taliban already have been hosting jihadi organizations from around the world they're going to have bases headquarters uh, all the way to boko haram let alone you know in the, in the middle east taliban will find themselves as a super isis in the region trying to bring down governments in the middle east of course they said they're not going to even recognize israel meaning they're going to be opposed to the abraham accord so we do have a strategic interest no matter what happened before in making sure that there is a safe zone in panjshir valley that's the priority there's a no-fly zone, safe zone, U.S. intervention, uh, I mean, U.N. intervention with aid, and then putting pressure on the Taliban and all the players around Afghanistan not to interfere, not to meddle. And Lisa, can I just add in that, that you know, the biggest win on top of 
you know, us no longer having Bagram Air Base on China's border and on top of access to the critical minerals and a new pathway for Belt and Road. But the biggest win for both China and Russia is in the propaganda and the information war. Uh, and as a, as a Middle East ambassador just told me that the, the entire region now has the message that democracy has failed, jihad has won, and yeah. America won't stand with you. And that is going to reverberate in Taiwan, in yeah. Ukraine, uh, and elsewhere uh, around the world. And the damage to American credibility and to our interests, right. I think right now is incalculable, but it is, uh, but it is extensive. And it's not hyperbole by any means. It's the dream of of a Democrat administration to uh, throw us off our pedestal by uh, any means possible, particularly with foreign policy. Um, if, if only the three of you were in Washington making the decisions, I think we've been in a much different place right now. Um, Ali, I want to end with you because I think you have such a unique voice in all of this. You are probably our most... Um, authentic and um, informed voice from the ground and these resistance fighters who are just heroes in my book. Um, you, you said something very interesting at the start of the show. You said, nobody's listening. Nobody knows what, what they're going through. The floor is yours. You know, um, imagine you have the ears, the hearts, the minds of anybody who needs to be listening. Uh, what do you want to tell the world about what's going on in Afghanistan? Well, this week is a very important week, both for Afghanistan and the United States. Becoming this week, two events changed both countries' histories. On 9-9-2001, we lost our charismatic leader, our national hero, the late Ahmad Shah Massoud. And in 9-11, we saw the tragic attacks in, in New York and in Washington, D.C. And both of them are intertwined. We have mutual enemies, the same enemies that perpetrated the two acts during this week in 2001, exactly 20 years ago, and the same enemies, the mutual enemies are still there, and they're fighting against our mutual values. However, today, 20 years after 9-11 and after 9-9-2001, the National Resistance Front is all alone. That partnership that we wanted to continue that should be endured today is at risk of change. and we believe if this partnership does not continue in the future we will not be able to prevent such events whether in afghanistan or the united states from happening again and so this is very important for the united states for afghanistan for others in the free world to come together help these freedom-loving people, these freedom fighters, everywhere, anywhere that they are, to combat radical uh, fundamentalist extremist views that these terrorists have, wherever they are. This war on terror is not finished. It is going to continue for years. If we just abandon areas like Afghanistan, we saw what happened in Iraq when the United States withdrew from Iraq. <laughs> Daesh or ISIS had its blitzkrieg. We're going to see much worse in Afghanistan. So there's still time to save democracy. There's still time to save the world from terrorism because what will unfold in the future when terrorism is entrenched in Afghanistan is much worse than what happened in Iraq and Syria in, in 2014. 
Wow. Well, um, I hope they're listening. I hope they're listening to all three of you because uh, your expertise and your perspective on this is invaluable. Uh, and this is a much larger fight than, uh, than, than the media is reporting. And we hope to uh, create that awareness to tell people the true story from the ground. I thank you, Congressman Waltz, Dr. Walid Ferris, Ali Nazadi, thank you for being with us. Thank you for your expertise. Uh, and we will tag all of your uh, handles after the show so that people can follow you and uh, keep up with your wonderful work, particularly in this arena. Good evening to you all. For those of you who would like to subscribe to our weekly podcast, please go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. And if you'd like to subscribe to our daily top 10 email, where you get the top headlines of the day every morning in your inbox, you can go to foreigndesknews.com and sign up there. Thank you for joining us and have a wonderful evening.